I've done a lot of work in um, injury, ACL injury prevention, and we worked for many years with the Australian women's hockey team. They suffered from a, a spate of injuries, about, I think it was five or six within a 12-month period leading into a year on the Olympics. And then we worked with them for the next uh, six years, and particularly through their coaching and medical staff with Kate Starr and uh, implementing this training program. They didn't have a non-contact ACL injury in that entire time period. Hello and welcome to the MTP Connect podcast. I'm Shannon Osrin. Today we are taking our virtual podcast studio to WA to discuss how sports scientists are improving performance and preventing injuries by creating a person's digital twin. With us today is Associate Professor Draculin Alderson from the University of Western Australia, a leading sports scientist who has developed this digital twin model. Also joining me today is my co-host, MTB Connect's Director of Stakeholder Engagement in WA, Dr. Kate Brooks. Jackie, I'll start with you. You are the Senior Research Lead in Sports and Clinical Biomechanics at UWA. Can you tell us how you got into that field? Uh, I always wanted to be a lawyer for my sins uh, my whole life. And I was a keen sports person uh, growing up uh, in South Australia, but I suffered from a fairly severe knee injury uh, when I was 15 and wasn't able to play sport anymore. And I've since had about eight knee surgeries. So what I did then um, was rather than not being able to play sport was out of the question. So I thought, why don't I study it? So I studied a science degree first and then did my honours in biomechanics um, in, as a specialist area. Biomechanics is something you specialise in as a postgraduate. And then I was just lucky enough to get a scholarship to do a PhD. And I, was, um, I had a very good mentor, um, uh, Professor Bruce Elliott. It might sound odd with that background, but he encouraged me to uh, uh, work in the area of knee, in, knee injuries, and which is what I did for my PhD even. But I really didn't, um, in all honesty, uh, do it because I had suffered from the injuries. It was a, a process that I was particularly interested in regarding something called dynamical systems theory. So in some ways, I just had very good mentorship and they direct guided me and directed me into a postgraduate path of biomechanics. So the first part of my career was very much in clinical biomechanics. That experience that you that you had must have been very, you know, influential on, on uh, your career pursuits. Yeah, I think so. I think um, it allows me to probably understand how important, uh, for many years I couldn't even watch a sports match. Um, certainly I've never really gone and watched netball again ever or, um, because I find it quite frustrating to not be able to participate. So in many ways it's without conscious uh, sort of, an un without a conscious undertaking, it's very much driven my desire to understand the mechanisms of injury much, much more purely through that uh, lens of personal experience. Could you take us through your digital twin model? Because that's, uh, that's really fascinating. So digital twins is not a new concept. It's been around for a really long time. But we mostly see it with respect to physical structures, the so bridges, even their whole ecosystems of, say, mining companies where they were on logistics. So there's lots of levels of digital twins. But Essentially, what you're doing is replicating a system or a series of systems in a digital landscape. And so for the human, which is obviously a much harder proposition, 
what we're trying to do is replicate people from what I'd like to call cell to shell. So from their base genome all the way through to their external skin, if you like, so every structure in between, and then monitor them out in the wild with wearable technology. So essentially what we're able to do, if you know, the long-term sort of matrix vision of this would be, we would have projection back into a headquarters where we would actually have some understanding of what 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 are the real-time loads and what are the real loads occurring and being affecting that individual out in the real world when they go about their daily business. And it's from understanding some of that sort of scope, what happens, so we get a long-term understanding of what happens to the human system. And there are lots of, clearly lots of ethical issues, you know, surrounding that particular proposition, but there's also great opportunity in that as well for those people that want us to get a better understanding of what's really occurring to the human body, which is outside our lab environment. So what I'm trying to do is get as much information as I possibly can on individuals who want that information collected and then rep trying to create a digital twin in silico, so in a computerised system. And that involves us taking things like DEXA scans or MRI scans, 3D body scans, all of their physiology information that they might have, their blood work, and essentially merging that into digital twins of people and making that sound a whole lot easier than what it, what it actually is. And that's where we start to use data science and computer science techniques in order to do that. Being in the uh, university sector, how how is that with uh, bridging the gap between, I guess, sports industry and the university life? Uh, that's a really good question. But I, um, I, I'm going to speak probably for all universities now with who actually run sports science, sports health, sort of human movement type degrees. I think of, um, of all the disciplines on campus, um, our ability to interact at the industry level is actually really, really good because uh, we don't really exist unless we get access to those industry partners. And um, I think the nature of what we do requires us to interact with at an elite level. And I think I can't really even think of one uh, department in a university across Australia who doesn't do so. And I actually think that reflects really well on the discipline more generally that in some ways we're sort of seen as the jocks on campus who are running around with their Nike T-shirts, et cetera. But at the same time, I think our ability to engage with the general community is, is very good and it's certainly something that is uh, encouraged and built into our processes, at the particularly at the undergraduate level. At the postgraduate level, I currently supervise about, uh, about 11 PhD students and I would say eight of them are actually engaged directly with uh, industry partners, sports partners or medical partners. It's Katie and I just wanted to jump in because just on the note of where you fit in in the sector, MTP Connect just last month released its uh, medical technology, biotechnology and pharmaceutical sector competitiveness plan. And this is a, a plan that's released annually to identify those sort of current and emerging knowledge priority areas. And human movement and sports science is identified as an emerging area as well as other areas mentioned in this plan around wearable devices and digital health and monitoring and um, digital evolution, precision healthcare. So you, you're kind of working in all of those things. Is it a challenge to be across or to be involved in many different areas? And how do you define your sec 
your actually niche area of, of research when it comes to funding and pitching and where do you fit in that plan? I think the scope of what we do um, means we can actually, and the training that we undergo means that we actually apply what we know, we can apply what we know to many different contexts. In some ways, I think that's a real strength for someone like myself, but it also means we sometimes get overlooked with targeted programs. And targeted programs, for example, that might specialise in med tech, we certainly have a huge amount of expertise in that space, but sometimes because of our applied translation position, um, we often, and that goes two ways, we're often overlooked, but we're also not very good at getting in there to say, hey, we're here, we know this, we've worked in this, we've used it out in the field, we know the, um, the limitations of this sort of technology. Um, sometimes in the hierarchy of biomechanics, for example, so there's different types of biomechanists. You might have neuromuscular biomechanists or clinical biomechanists, sports biomechanists by definition. Are, I shouldn't say this, but they are. They're deemed to be pretty lower down the food chain. But that's actually, I think, really unfair. And the reason for that is we have to get out in the field and actually engage and justify our place with coaches and athletes all the time. And we're also working with a level of technology that is actually the technology that often gets created and then comes back into the clinical space. And in that context, I think we, we almost get a bad rap. And it's, also, it's almost because of the translation focus that we have that we're forced to have because our industry partners are very applied in nature. Um, but I think we could also do a better job at getting out in more specific med areas. And some there are some groups certainly across Australia that do very well, particularly in Queensland and Melbourne. How do you begin developing those relationships with sports associations, clubs? Do you have a kind of a pitch that you that you go about doing? Not particularly. I would like to, I should say yes, but it's actually not the case. They generally come to, for example, I've done a lot of work in um, injury, ACL injury prevention, and we worked for many years with the Australian women's hockey team. They suffered from a, a spate of injuries about, I think it was five or six within a 12-month period leading into the London Olympics. And then we worked with them for the next uh, six years and uh, particularly through their coaching and medical staff with Kate Starr and uh, implementing this training program. They didn't have a non-contact ACL injury in that entire time period. And so in many respects, the, it's a word of mouth and you have to work closely with teams to establish a level of trust and some, sometimes it means you can't go in with your big picture research idea. You have to then take each individual step to build a level of trust so to, to get to where you want to be because these teams have uh, their own priorities and often their competitive advantage priorities. So you have to work with them for often small-scale projects and then when you build that level of trust, you will move to the next level and the next level and the next level. That then almost builds to the research capability that you're particularly interested in. So there are these very strong competing demands when you work with elite teams or even non-elite teams, to be honest, amateur teams, that they have an initial priority of one of servicing and we're not here for servicing. We're here often to conduct research and make breakthroughs. So you can't, you can't really walk in and say, I've got this seven-year plan and at the end of this plan you can have X. What you need to do... Uh, is build a, almost a pathway or a workbench with these teams so that they get, it's a mutually beneficial relationship, so they get something that falls out along a research workbench that's beneficial for them. And it may not be beneficial for you as a researcher because you might perceive it as just a service component, 
But if you don't build it in that context, no one wins because they don't see anything for a period of time and then they don't think it's valuable. And often the fast pace of elite sport means that you've, you've had turnover of high-performance coaching staff and high-performance staff during that time. So everyone needs to get a little bit of something. So you have to, I think the, the real process is trying to find a win-win for everyone. Talk us through some of the tech that you, you know, you need to get this data. I'm imagining Fitbit is not going to do it on its own. What, what else do you need? So at the moment, one of the one of the shortcomings of biomechanics historically, and uh, even for the ACL work that we worked with the hockey rooms, um, we needed those players to come into the lab every single time we needed to test them, and that's you know two three hour testing process where we had to use traditional motion capture systems because of the resolution and the the fidelity of the data that we really needed to use it in the way that we're talking. So for higher order biomechanical models that would give us some insight into mechanistic causes, we need this higher sort of lab-based type of collection. And that to date has been um, a limiting factor in what we go about doing. And what I'd like to do is bridge that nexus. So can we leverage off of all the laboratory data we have? Um, Because we have huge amounts, particularly in Australia. And one of the competitive advantages that we have in Australia is in fact that many of the labs across Australia use very similar procedures and it's unique to this country from a biomechanics perspective, which it, but it affords us great opportunity. So if we can come together to share our data, what we can do then is collate it into a, just a single point of reference and then we can start to use, which is what we're doing at the moment, for example, where we're predicting just using wearable sensors that people are wearing the higher order data that we would have normally collected in the lab because we basically make relationships using machine learning tools to say, well, the wearable sensor gives us this, we know it means this from a force plate or we know it means this from motion in the lab, from the data sets we have in the lab. Um, And so that kind of technology is really where we're at at the moment. So that affords us an opportunity to be able to collect this sort of data in the wild, but we're leveraging existing large, large high higher resolution data sets that we have that we need to do the kind of modeling that, that is required to get deep insight and understanding. Jack, you mentioned academic reach and, and the importance of, you know, extending your research beyond, beyond those academic sector. What I'd like to talk to you about, and you talked about this at the beginning, about how important mentorship had been to you, and clearly you make reference to your supervisors and those that you've, you know, those colleagues that you've worked with and learned from. You're doing that. You're giving back. You've you've had a sweep of students, and you're training PhD students and lecturing. Can you talk about, you know, where are your students now? What, what you know, where where have you reached in the globe? Yeah, I, this is a um, this is nice actually. I only reflected on this yesterday. I had to update my CV for something internal, and I've now graduated about twenty three PhD students, and they can be found all over the world, which I'm quite proud of as well. In the context that you find them in industry, New York Yankees. My last PhD graduate actually was um, a great guy who came back as a mature age student, and he started. And he'd been, he'd had a whole other life and was a network engineer. And he's one of the people I put on the Digital Twin Project, actually. He had a great experience in computing, so he was the perfect. Often you have to find the right animal. Anyway, the first thing he said, I said, tell me where you want to be at the end of this. And he said, ideally I'd work in Major League Baseball. I said, well, that's a great ambition and we will do our very best. He was hired about five days after submission 
He's the senior data research engineer for the Houston Astros. And that was a fantastic outcome for him and one that we, it, it's great to ask them when they come in, where, where do you see yourself? Give me your best case scenario, no limit, and let's see what we can do. Students now work for Tennis Australia, swim, Swimming Australia, Hockey Australia, a number in uh, academia, so at La Trobe, at University of Canberra, at Murdoch, at Curtin, the University of Massachusetts, Stanford, a uh, former undergraduate, and uh, he's now at, was working at Stanford. He's actually just moved to Apple. So they work they work in a vast vast array of places, uh, Fremantle Dockers, a lot of you know in the AFL as well. So you can find them everywhere, which is. Yeah, it's a nice question, Kate. It's uh, it was quite satisfying yesterday when I had a look. Also, my very first ever PhD student is now a full professor, and is is Professor Kathy Elliott, very highly regarded at uh, Telecom Kids Institute. I'm very proud of all of them. Jackie, we could talk we could talk to you for ages, and we've really appreciated your time in chatting with us today on the podcast. So. Thank you uh, for joining us to talk about this really fascinating area. And it's been a delight to be with you, Shannon. Thanks very much. And also you, Kate. Lovely to talk to you. So many thanks to my guest, Associate Professor Jacqueline Alderson from UWA and my co-host, Dr. Kate Brooks, for joining me today. This was the MTB Connect podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find our podcast and all the usual podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple, and Stitcher. Leave a review, subscribe, and keep following us to hear more great stories from the MTP sector. Until next time.